0: The word neuroplasticity is an elegant combination of the words neuron and plastic. And it essentially paints a very clear picture of the brain's malleability, its capacity to change.
1: Neuroplasticity is your ever present superpower that helps you grow and revitalize your brain.
0: Neurons that fire together, wire together. Welcome to the Brain Health Revolution podcast with your hosts, Aisha and Dean Sherzai. We are neurologists, scientists, and authors of two best-selling books and parents to two amazing humans. In a world where our understanding of brain health is constantly evolving, join us as we unravel the mysteries of the human brain. Through captivating conversations, insightful interviews, and thought-provoking discussions, we empower you with the knowledge and tools to optimize brain function and prevent cognitive decline. From nutrition, exercise, restorative sleep, to building cognitive resilience and the impact of technology, we explore the fascinating connections between brain health and other facets of our lives. Get ready to unlock the potential of your brain and embrace a life of vitality. Welcome, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us today. Dean and I will talk about the concept of neuroplasticity, which is a term that was once echoed only in the walls of neuroscience labs or in a, in a scientific community or in a conference, but it has recently become almost a buzzword in the realm of self-help education and wellness groups. So let's talk about it. What is it and why is the word neuroplasticity or the concept of neuroplasticity causing such a stir?
1: To the extent that it's actually overstated at times. So we wanna kind of bring it back together as far as what it is, even at its boundaries, at its stretches, what what could it be perceived as? And it's a powerful concept that we're gonna get into. But before that, I want to talk about a story of a friend of ours that recently um, had an event that speaks to this amazing concept. He was a gentleman, very bright gentleman in his early uh, 60s. And in the middle of the night, we were given a call and we, uh, we started speaking with the family members. Uh, of his and and his friends and they were telling us the symptoms and the signs and and the fact that he had uh, some sensory changes on the one side and then the left side just became completely paralyzed and he started having slurred speech and confusion as neurologists we kind of know what that is because we've seen it enough there are patterns in neurology it's almost like electronics
0: we're trained to localize these kind of lesions exactly
1: and in his case uh, we also asked them to send the imaging and immediately we know we saw that it was a major stroke it was a very scary stroke because it was a stroke of a this artery that connects the entire brain together uh, which is called the basilar artery that lies right over the brainstem and then spreads into the rest of the brain it's at the confluence of the two anterior and posterior two front and two back arteries the back ones are the vertebral arteries and the front ones are the carotid arteries and uh, they call it the circle of willis where all of this comes together the spider that's right it's an ominous name but it looks like a spider doesn't all these arms coming out of the basilar and if somebody clogs off that artery it's pretty dire it really Uh, is at the best it they get what they call uh uh, locked in syndrome where because they can't move they can't speak they can't move their cranial nerves which is the eyes and everything and the past people thought they were dead and They would have buried them alive Uh, at worst they they have major strokes where they lose capacity of massive parts of their brain great majority actually died in this case he had left-sided weakness some slurred speech some confusion they called us we flew overnight we got to him we immediately made some uh, recommendations as far as changes to make sure that there's no clotting going on he was
0: taken to a hospital hospital obviously immediately transferred to the hospital and i'm so glad that we spoke with the family to make sure that they don't keep him at home
1: the one mistake was that, and this is this speaks to everybody. The three-hour window is critical. If mm-hmm. you even suspect that somebody has a stroke, get them to the emergency room because within those three to three and a half hours, and some now even four hours, yes. people get can get this medication that's called a clot buster that can break the clot. So he didn't get there. Actually, it was almost like. 10 hours 12 hours I, yeah, later he, he, that he
0: had he, symptoms 10 hours said, yeah,
1: exactly we get to him and and we do our exam on bedside and what a lovely human being and you you imagine this person and all his glory on his, in his kindness all his persona all his capacities his fearlessness yeah. everything that you know about this person and then whenever you see this uh, person like that in, in an icu in their most vulnerable state it's it was such devastating. a devastating thing to all of us even as doctors repeatedly seeing this never makes it any less and seeing him in that state was no less of a devastating experience because he was vulnerable he was tearing up he couldn't move his left side He can barely move his fingers which actually is a big deal if there's zero movement at all that's worse than if they can move a little bit of a finger but it was minimal though Minimal. Initially, he was very confused, but he became better and better. And by the end of that day, he could speak to you in a slurred speech. We realized that uh, the, cl- the clot had stabilized, the stroke had stabilized. He still had a pretty dense, what they call dense hemiparesis on the left side, which means that the left side couldn't move much, almost minimally, just the muscle movement. Right. But he could converse. So at least cognition was better. And, and we did a cognitive test and he was pretty good. Minimal confusion, but good. So we, although we were happy that he hadn't experienced the devastating strokes that we have seen in the past, as a result of a basal artery stroke, and the fact that uh, he had left-sided weakness and his cognition was good, but still it's pretty sad. And the experience in a situation like this is usually that, oh yeah, physical therapy and all those things can help, but usually people don't recover too much from this dense of a hemiparesis, left-sided stroke. Um, But nonetheless, he was started on significant physical therapy and, and everything else, and medications cholesterol lowering drugs all of the things that usually are done we thought that you know it might take years for him to be able to move his fingers a little bit and and things of that nature and we kind of prepared him for that six months later yes we fly back to see him and he's walking
0: without a cane without a cane no assistance whatsoever he's moving
1: his left arm and picking up things with his two fingers he's picking up peas from the uh, table as, a, as an exercise to show the dexterity and we are just blown away what reality was that the whole time we were hearing a fight between him and his uh, caregivers that he was pushing his limits to be honest at a cost a danger because he would be walking up the stairs doing things that would be very dangerous in, in most cases but he was pushing himself hours at a time of physical therapy
0: I'm giggling here because my favorite story is his daughter told him dad you got to be careful you're not well-balanced and you might fall. And the stubborn guy that he is, he would take his iPhone and put it at the end of the hallway. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he would get out of his room with the trash bag and he would film himself going to the trash chute in the apartment, yes. opening the door, putting the trash in there with the weaker arm, closing the door, walking back and forth a couple of times to show, uh, you know, just to record how well he's walking and then send the video to his daughter at work. Which is just, just remarkable.
1: Just I mean, I wouldn't suggest this for everybody, but it speaks to his work ethic. It speaks to his capacity to push himself, to really push this, this concept of neuroplasticity to its end degree. Now, he's
0: working full-time again. Right. He went back to work, and we were, you know, as neurologists, when you see a pontine stroke, pons is the part of the midbrain that is supplied or nourished by the basilar artery that Dean was talking about. The pontine strokes are very, very dangerous. To know that he actually suffered from that and then we're looking at him six months later like this was just incredible. That
1: story is the epitome of neuroplasticity.
0: I'm so glad you chose the story. I think that's a great example of this concept.
1: Now, I want to make sure that we are careful and not creating false hope because every case is different. That's true. Every single case is different. It doesn't mean that if you have a dense stroke and you work out day and night that you're going to recover completely. But what the point was being made here is that the brain has capacity to grow. Mm-hmm. We hear about plasticity. Maybe most people know about cells growing. Actually, that's the least of it. Yeah. Or others know about cells making connections between each other. Actually, that's not even all of it. There's so much more to it. And what goes into this neuroplasticity as far as lifestyle, as far as physical therapy, as far as medications and everything else is critical to know. Because it's not just about strokes. It's not just about cognitive decline. It's about all of us having that capacity, especially when you're not going through a stroke. Because if you're a healthy young person and you do the necessary things that I'm going to talk about as far as neuroplasticity. Is concerned, your brain is probably going to gain exponentially more because you're not just in a survival state. You're going to be in a thriving state.
0: The word neuroplasticity is an elegant combination of the words neuron and plastic. And it essentially paints a very clear picture of the brain's malleability, yes. its capacity to change. And sometimes it's referred to as brain or neural plasticity as well. And it essentially shows the brain's awe-inspiring ability to reconfigure itself, to forge new neural pathways and connections throughout an individual's life. We
1: didn't know about this for many, many centuries, if not millennia, that the brain had this capacity. Mm-hmm. We thought that the brain was static. You had a certain number of neurons and then you would be stuck with that. And if something happened, you would be stuck with that state. Because the data that we had was somebody had a stroke majority of people back then, we're talking about 30 years ago, would die. And then the ones that survived, we didn't have much tools of measuring change. So we thought that a static or if somebody had aphasia or a language center stroke, they lost the capacity to speak. And that's that. And so we thought that that was a static phenomenon. Over the last few decades, we have learned that, oh my goodness, the brain has tremendous capacity to grow and to reconnect and do all the things that we're going to describe. And that gives us hope, not just for the disease state, but the, for the healthy state. Mm-hmm. So that, that's the critical factor.
0: Absolutely. So the textbook definition of neuroplasticity <clears throat> as described in neurology books and in some journals and papers is the ability, of the nervous system to change its activity in response to intrinsic and extrinsic stimuli by reorganizing its structure function and connections these changes can be beneficial like you were talking about our friend restoration of function after an injury or a stroke it could be neutral where there's really no change and sometimes it can be negative and it can have pathological consequences and we'll talk about all of that later as well.
1: And the data came to us from pathology and imaging, um, the modalities. Absolutely, yeah. You worked for several years on fMRIs which are very cool devices. The, fMRI is functional MRI. Right. wanna describe stands that for a little function. bit, yeah.
0: Yes, yes, so it's it's a <coughs> type of neuroimaging where the brain's activity, specifically blood flow, And activation and deactivation of certain parts of the brain are seen live during imaging. So say for example, uh, the kind of research that I was involved with at UCSD was to look at changes in specific sequences of functional MRI called BOLD and ASL. And what we found was when patients were given certain memory tasks and they were asked to remember and memorize words and concepts, the blood flow to certain parts of the brain changed. The activity actually changed. It either increased or decreased based on their proclivity for developing Alzheimer's disease.
1: And other MRI methodologies also showed us that where there was a stroke, Actually, the stroke initially grew. There was uh, edema or fluid accumulation. Then there was death of cells. But then there was actually growth into those or in between. So we saw even with repeated MRIs, we saw these things. And then we have PET scans Mm -hmm. where we look at the metabolism of the brain where right after stroke, you can actually see where the metabolism has gone down in a shock state. And then over time, metabolism or use of glucose actually returns to that area. So all of these methodologies showed us. And of course, pathology, which means after the person has passed away, let's say somebody had a stroke and then they were recovering, you could see how the original focus of stroke was a certain size. And afterwards, after recovery, that area was actually altered by the neuroplasticity. So we had plenty of data from pathology, from imaging, and, and even ligands where you can actually see axons grow and connect. That's
0: completely
1: changed our perspective
0: and i think we should include neuropsychological testing as well i mean we can actually assess neuroplasticity or documented through memory testing and neuroplasticity too. Um, there are people who are not able to do specific things, whether it's better processing of information or memorizing new information. And after some exercises or say, for example, cognitive therapy and speech therapy, they're able to do that. So that's a concept of neuroplasticity too. To so
1: Now where we are at a point where we know neuroplasticity to be much more than just neurons growing, we know that neuroplasticity is fully active and vibrant throughout life even late in life. So before we get into the specifics of neuroplasticity, let's talk about brain's capacity, starting at the very early in life. This gives us a little picture of a brain's ability to grow and connect.
0: Yeah, I'm really glad that you thought that it would it would be a great addition to this conversation. So the the growth of this, the human brain is very complex and it spans several different stages of life, from fetal development to early adulthood. So let's break it down. Let's start with the fetal stage. Now, during week three and four, there's neural tube formation, uh, which later on develops into the central nervous system. And by week five, the brain begins to divide into its major sections. Mm -hmm. And by the end of the first trimester, the brain's basic structure is in place, and it continues to grow rapidly from then on. And when the baby (coughs) is born at birth, newborns have about 100 billion neurons. Correct. So that's the, the largest number of neurons that any human being has is at birth.
1: Remember that we as adults have 87 billion neurons.
0: So we start losing, and that's the process of pruning and apoptosis. Correct. And the brain weighs about 400 grams when the baby's born.
1: Uh, adult brain... Which has less neurons but weighs more what would be the 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 reason is vascularity and the reason is connectivity exactly so it has neurons but it hasn't made all the all the connections it's almost like bare trees without all the roots interesting so the most of the weight of the brain is the connections and the roots
0: amazing and by age one the brains weight weight is more than double of what it was at birth so it reaches about one thousand grams and the synaptic density in the cerebral cortex peaks like you were saying and it reaches levels up to double that of an adult brain Correct. wow And there's rapid growth of neural connections from age one to age five. At age three, 70% of synaptic connections are already formed, and the brain reaches about 80% of its adult volume. This is a very critical period for sensory pathways like vision, hearing, development of language skills, and higher cognitive functions takes place. The first seven years. By seven years, the brain reaches about 90% of adult volume. And at this point there is synaptic pruning because unused connections are eliminated and neural networks become more and more efficient.
1: I look at that almost like, have you seen these uh, devices, the electronic printers where it prints the entire thing and then cuts through to leave us the final structure.
0: Exactly, yes.
1: And so pruning is actually cleaning the system to reduce all the unnecessary connections as we grow. And uh, by the way, the pruning process is not completely genetically determined. It's actually determined by environment as well.
0: Amazing, amazing. All right, so that was the first seven years. During adolescence, the brain undergoes significant restructuring, uh, particularly in the prefrontal cortex, which is responsible for planning, impulse control, and higher order cognitive functions. And throughout adolescence, synaptic pruning continues and the brain becomes more specialized. And there's also thickening of the brain's gray matter and it peaks during adolescence and then slowly and gradually, During the teen years and early 20s, it slows down and decreases significantly. Mm -hmm. During the teen years, I feel like (sighs) our kids should be here, there's continued growth and refinement of the prefrontal cortex. The limbic system, which is responsible for emotions and reward processes, becomes more active. And there's a lot of risk-taking behavior that becomes more and more prominent in peaks and it is suggested that this may be due to an imbalance in maturation between the limbic system and the prefrontal cortex. So they're not really communicating well with each other.
1: Evolutionarily though, it might've been advantageous because um, evolutionarily, uh, the, the number of people didn't matter. The few that took the risk that brought about change and uh, survival of the larger number mattered. So mm-hmm. they think that this might've been a, a evolutionary advantage. At the peak of their physical capacity and prowess, They're taking some measure, well, it's not, doesn't look like, but but often, but uh, some measure of planned risk, out of the box, increasing survival, increasing thriving, increasing propagation. All of these might not be just incidental, it might be evolutionary as well, but look at all the change. That's right. Profound amount of change, and that in itself is also plasticity.
0: This concept of neuroplasticity kind of peaks during our early 20s, where the brain achieves its full adult volume. The prefrontal cortex, which is the last area of the brain to mature. That makes sense. Yes. Yes. (laughs) It makes sense in so many ways. It finishes developing. There is less and less synaptic pruning, and it kind of completes when people start hitting their mid-20s, and it leads to a very efficient brain network.
1: But that doesn't end then.
0: No, it doesn't. The
1: brain changing and evolving and connecting and... Growing continues throughout life again. I always make this point that when we talk about brain health and brain vitality and growth because our work is on the one end of the age spectrum, which is older individuals, it's difficult to explain this to younger people that actually what you do there is as important, if not more so for long term brain health, but even short term brain health. You don't recognize the capacity that it imparts on you when you do the right things for brain growth, brain connections, brain plasticity. It doesn't appear as massive as the story I said at the beginning, which is a stroke patient recovering, but it is as consequential in many ways. When you do the right things to create greater plasticity and growth and connectivity, it actually creates pathways of focus, creativity, so much that all these influencers on TV talk about with some gimmicky stuff, yet it is this neuroplasticity that you have control over that manifests massively on your daily life
0: absolutely let's uh, take a deeper dive into these mechanisms and understand uh, you know essentially the science behind the brain's incredible adaptability i want to make sure
1: that we start with this concept that neuroplasticity is not about just nerve growth which Mm -hmm. is neurogenesis yeah it's not about just synaptic connections or connections between neurons which are massive I mean, we always say that 87 billion neurons can each make a couple of connections or as many as 30 to 50,000 connections. Can you imagine that? I mean, that's fluid. That's always there. That's really the the true power of the brain. So it's not just about synaptogenesis or neurogenesis. It's also about angiogenesis, which is vascular growth without a vascular supply, without a blood supply that's everywhere in the brain. Remember, the most vascular organ in your body is not your heart. It's your brain brain, by far, exponentially Mm -hmm. far. So angiogenesis and also gliogenesis, the supporting structure of the brain. You have nearly nine times more glial cells than you have neurons. Mm. And those glial cells have multifarious functions such as immune response and cleansing and movement of structures, movement of items. It has so many functions that are critical for the brain. In fact, in many ways, the brain cannot function even when the glial system is affected minimally. So gliogenesis, angiogenesis, synaptogenesis, neurogenesis are all speaking to this plasticity, this growth. So when you do the right things, which we'll talk about, you're affecting all of this army of growth and and resiliency. And that's why it's so important.
0: Yeah. Beautiful. At the heart of neuroplasticity is synaptic plasticity though, right? The synapses or the junctions where neurons communicate, they're not fixed in their strength and they can strengthen, they can weaken based on any activity that they experience. I'm speaking about neurons as if they're people, kind of humanizing them, but
1: because the fifth, let's say the 30,000 connections, right? Right. But it's not just about even that those 30,000 connections. It's about the strength of each of those that vary. You said it beautifully. The strength between those connections have their own message. That's a message. And then there are inhibitory and stimulatory neurons that connect upon them. So imagine this network of strong, weak, stimulated, inhibited system that's fluid and active. And if it's done well through a focused, less stressed well-fed system it is exponentially more powerful than one that is stressed that's not gotten sleep that's not getting the right nutrients that's actually being attacked by horrible elements of oxidation and inflammation and glucose dysregulation it's a world of difference that over time devastates these connections Mm,
0: beautiful i can actually picture that very very clearly in my mind fantastic We'll take a moment halfway through discussing this fascinating topic to talk about Neuroacademy an online community for those who are interested in learning more about living a brain healthy life Neuro Academy is an online community of over 500 members now and its goal is to help you expand your knowledge about the latest advances in brain health and applying all that knowledge towards your well-being it's one thing to have the knowledge but a completely different experience to have a team of experts that will help you translate that knowledge into your daily life and Neuro Academy serves both of those goals dive into a collection of on-demand courses that cover various aspects of brain health. Whether you're interested in learning about optimal nutrition, exercise, building resilience, or the science of lifestyle choices and cognitive well-being, you'll find courses to satisfy your curiosity. Plus, you can earn certifications and request CE and CME credits. Every Monday, join us for a live Q&A session, get direct answers to your burning questions, and interact with the lovely community. On Fridays, participate in our live cooking sessions to learn brain-boosting recipes that you can make in your own kitchen. And if you're a culinary enthusiast, connect with like-minded members in the Neuro Cooking Club where you can share your passion for brain-healthy cuisine. There are various interest clubs such as the Neuro Book Club, Exercise Club, Gardening Club, and more. Visit neuroacademy.com to learn more and invest in your brain's well-being for a brighter, healthier future. Now let's get back to our discussion. What do you know about the Hebbian theory? Hebbian theory is a theory that was named after the psychologist Donald Hebb. It essentially elegantly captures this idea with the phrase neurons that fire together wire together.
1: Correct. It's systems. We, we talk about human systems. This is neural systems. Neural systems that work together and not ad hoc, not at a chance, not as a result of a seizure. They're marshaled together for a given activity. They don't just move towards that. They make the right connection exponentially for the given activity. Mm. So that's the Hebbian.
0: I really like this whole idea of anthropomorphizing neurons. <laughs> and giving them personalities and wonderful when these neurons or let's say two neurons activate together the synapses between them strengthen and on the opposite side conversely if they rarely activate together the connection weakens and this adaptive mechanism makes sure that our brain refines its neural circuits and it's all based on experience So whatever intrinsic factor is introduced, say for example, if someone is made to do physical therapy, if our friend started doing physical therapy and the physical therapist gave him weights or gave him some sort of resistance training, that action of doing something over and over again potentiated those synaptic connections.
1: Those connections cannot be made if the right nutrients are not in place. That's where the function of the food comes in. Although food, it does have some effect, but it doesn't have as much of an effect as other things I'm about to speak to. But nutrients that you take, the good and the bad, has profound effect on the environment within which these connections are made. So if the environment within which these connections are made, you have insulin resistance or diabetes that's untreated and cholesterol and oxidative stress and inflammation and not the right nutrients or not enough but B12 especially which is important vitamin D and, and omega 3 which is the main fat that the brain needs and instead you're inundating the system with oxidative processes through a, a saturated fat and sugar and things of that nature you can't even get to the point of connections. Mm. so yeah, it's a little more complicated. You could do all the exercise you want, but if you don't lower the cholesterol, lower LDL the cholesterol. Mode, yeah. cholesterol, if you don't create the right environment, the milieu, the environment that where these neurons can make the connections, they're not going to make the connections. So the first thing is that if you have stress and anxiety and depression where the cortisol is at high and the hypothalamic pituitary system is revving up the system, the sympathetic drive is actually in a fight or flight mode and survival mode and not in a thriving mode, your brain will never make those connections. So you have to take care of all those things as well. That's why meditation, mindfulness, a state of mental management where emotions are can't control if somebody is depressed, which is very common, physiologically common post-stroke where we actually treat them with medication. If that's not taken care of, then you're actually destroying the environment within which this regeneration needs to take place. Then nutrition has to be proper. And by the way, we don't take good care of nutrition in hospitals, which blows my mind. You want not somebody to thrive, you want somebody to regenerate, you want somebody to make the connections, yet the nutrients are not taken care of because the food in the hospitals are terrible. Really have to start talking about food in that context. We minimize it. We don't talk about it at the, at the extent that we have to. There is no regeneration if you're causing oxidation and inflammation with every meal you're having.
0: And just because we don't see the consequences then and there doesn't mean that it's not happening. Because of the reserve that we have, sometimes the immediate effects of poor nutrition is not visible and... The body corrects for itself. But at that vulnerable stage, when people are in the hospital, or for example, when they have had a stroke, or when they are in advanced stages of dementia, or things of that nature, it's very, very important to maintain that healthy extrinsic factor.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. So all of those things must be taken care of. We so, were
0: talking about neuroplasticity. Yes, this is neuroplasticity.
1: <laughs> neuroplasticity is at the junction of the pharmaceuticals that we have, right. the tools that we have even the clot removal that needs to be done, the, the mechanical thrombectomy, mechanical or giving them TPA, yeah. And all these other things that gives the brain the chance to grow and thrive. But coming back, it is real. It is profound and it's powerful yeah. and it's exponential. And our concept of neuro, which is nutrition. I'll leave exercise to the, to the last because I think in this situation, exercise is probably the most profound of them all. Absolutely. In fact, exercise and that. mental activity are the, the two components that allow the growth allow the connections, Whereas nutrition and stress management and sleep create the environment for the growth to take place, mm-hmm. exercise and mental activity do the growing, That's do the connecting. But it's critical for us to know that and approach it in this systematic way. And also not just approach diseases in this systematic way, approach life in neuroplasticity at its core. Because your brain is changing all the time, the change can happen to you or you can be in charge of that change exponentially
0: so we, we, so we touched on synaptic complexity and we talked about the hebbian theory which is neurons fire that fire together wire together there's a concept of homeostatic plasticity and while the hebbian theory emphasizes strengthening connections through repeated activity there's another side to the coin as well the brain needs to maintain a balance and homeostatic plasticity is a representation of that concept. And this mechanism ensures that the brain doesn't go into an overdrive with hyperactivity or become too inhibited at times. Homeostatic plasticity comes into play and it starts adjusting synaptic strengths and respond to prolonged activity changes and helps the brain maintain a stable and optimal level of activity, which is phenomenal. So basically, if somebody is exposed to too much physical activity for example right or if if they're exposed to certain cognitive activities that may become overbearing this almost acts as a brain's thermostat and ensures that things don't get too hot or too cold the other uh, type of plasticity is an experience dependent plasticity and it's the brain's way of saying i learned from experience so every new skill that we acquire every emotion that we feel every environment that we explore can lead to changes in our neural pathways and uh, synapses for example musicians they often have a more developed auditory cortex Correct. They're, they're bigger and it's a testament to the brain's ability to reshape itself based on experience and i remember reading about some athletes actually having bigger cerebellum
1: yes the
0: cerebellar hemispheres are more complex and bigger in them which identifies their capacity to balance and to move smoothly through spaces exactly which is so phenomenal yes, it
1: is it is Absolutely.
0: All right. And then probably one of the most incredible demonstrations of neuroplasticity is functional plasticity. And when a part of the brain becomes damaged, for example, in our friend after a stroke, other regions step in and they take over the functions of the damaged area. And this remarkable adaptability shows us that rehabilitation therapies after brain injuries and strokes are very, very important.
1: And, and I've seen that VR or virtual reality has mm. become an incredible tool to help connect the areas that are lost to other areas of the brain to take over that function.
0: Absolutely. So let's talk about the role of lifestyle now. Let's go into some of the details. We're going to leave exercise, like you said, to the end. Let's talk about nutrition. As you mentioned earlier, nutrition provides the right kind of an environment for the brain to grow. And diet is important. Multiple different food products and micronutrients and macronutrients have been studied. One of the diet modifications that can be done and have been supported are adding polyphenols, which are phenolic acids, still beans, lignans, flavanols, and anthracins. and they consist of about 800 compounds within antioxidant capacity. So these are foods like blueberries, greens, some beans, but mostly dark green leafy vegetables and purple and dark fruits like berries and grapes and things of that nature. They have been associated with improving neuroplasticity. As far as omega-3 fatty acids are concerned, these are abundant in marine organisms, in flaxseeds, in walnuts, and recently, Research has shown that they play a crucial role in enhancing synaptic plasticity. Antioxidants in dark chocolate, green tea are packed with antioxidants. They combat oxidative stress. And oxidative stress, like you said earlier, is a major culprit behind neuronal damage and stopping neuroplasticity. Mm -hmm. And and we
1: have to make sure there are no nutrient deficiencies. Agreed. Uh, B12, folate, vitamin D, omega-3, that often is seen in this setting. um, And uh, make sure that those are not deficient because with, with with B12, deficiency for example the chance of neuronal connection goes down significantly
0: absolutely all right cognitive activity or mental gymnastics is a powerful way of enhancing neuroplasticity
1: there are many many studies now that show that people at any age or post trauma post head trauma post stroke when they're engaged in cognitive activity with the help of a speech therapist the speech therapists are not just about speech they're actually also trained in helping with cognitive tools that they actually grow connections in the deficient areas. They've done the studies with MRIs. They've done the studies with other tools that has seen connection at any age, but for that matter. One example that we always give this not post-disease, but in a population-based studies, the London taxi driver study, men of middle age range early in their, af- 50s. In their yeah. 50s after getting ready or uh, or studying for the London taxi driver Which test, by the
0: way is called the knowledge. I don't know if the, it's the still called yes. the knowledge, but the test was called the knowledge. Which
1: is pretty complex test. This, imagine this before GPS.
0: Sounds scary. <laughs> it is.
1: And they compared them to bus drivers, which actually just follow the same track over and over again. These individuals actually grew their hippocampus. They actually grew parts of the brain. And it was significant enough growth to be seen by MRI, which is remarkable. And we've seen that repeatedly in, in many other studies, in, including a 2011 study where it showed that individuals that had cognitive decline and they did aerobic exercise, they grew their brain by 2%, specifically the hippocampus, the part of the brain dedicated for memory by 2% and by two years they had reversed the loss and we've seen this in other mci studies we've spoken about mci and leg strength where people were able to reverse the mci we know that exercise has profound effect and exercise's effect, as I said, is not just blood supply. It's not just BDNF, not just angiogenesis or, or VGF. It's all of the above. And exercise also reduces toxins mm-hmm. indirectly because by increasing blood flow, then clearing of toxins increases. Exercise normalizes your glucose metabolism. It helps with lipid metabolism. Exercise helps with, you remember, your biggest pump in your body is not your heart. It's your legs. It helps with blood flow to the brain. Exercise helps with GDN. Which is glial drive neurotrophic factor. Exercise helps with BDNF, which is brain drive neurotrophic factor. I would venture to say that there is not much more powerful than consistent exercise.
0: Absolutely some of the other lifestyle factors beyond diet and exercise are stress management short-term stress can actually sometimes be a motivator but chronic stress is a neural nemesis
1: it's a neurotoxin because uh, high cortisol levels at a time where your brain is being attacked or has been attacked by a stroke by infection by whatever it is is actually exponentially more damaging
0: absolutely anyone who's had prolonged exposure to stress and stress hormones like cortisol can induce negative plasticity their brains essentially are smaller and they shrink and that can affect their learning and their memory as well and put them at a higher risk for developing neurodegenerative diseases later on
1: we're picking one chemical which is cortisol but it's actually across the board whether it's apoptotic proteins or even igf-1 and other things all of them are altered by stress in a negative way so.
0: absolutely All right, environmental enrichment or exposing your brain to stimulating environments filled with new experiences, new challenges can enhance plasticity. So traveling or learning a new language or art, or essentially just putting yourself in situations where you experience new things can promote neuroplasticity. Ironically
1: or fortuitously, I can say that for more advanced trauma, for people who've had significant stroke to the point where they couldn't speak or they couldn't connect to their family, then going to the old islands of memory is critical. Mm. So one of the things that has worked for both of us is, whenever somebody has had such a profound stroke where they can't even speak and they can't remember the name of people, I say have pictures of family members around. Have people on recording speaking to them on a regular basis. Have a picture with a name repeated in front of them. Those are old memories that are most likely retained in a more broad way than just in the hippocampus in a tenuous Mm -hmm. way. Once those old memories are stimulated, other things can connect to that. So I call it the islands of memory that, that, that you can access.
0: Environmental enrichment doesn't necessarily have to be new experiences, but for people who have experienced an injury reminding them of old experiences can also be helpful
1: it's a connection point it's mm-hmm. a you're connecting to an old island and building upon that
0: islands of memory
1: islands of memory
0: amazing all right sleep we both know sleep is important <laughs> i feel like a hypocrite talking about sleep right now uh we haven't had much sleep but That's because we're so passionate about so many things going on in our life right now, so many projects and so many deadlines. But it's often overlooked, and it plays a very crucial role in neuroplasticity. I think students, people who are actually in school, and they're learning, and they're taking tests and scoring well, they know about the importance of sleep. Essentially, during sleep, the brain consolidates memories. It strengthens synaptic connections. It Mm -hmm. helps with pruning and eliminating unnecessary connections. And so ensuring a good night's sleep is very important for optimal brain function
1: and and that's where sleep hygiene techniques sleep takes longer we've said you and i
0: need to do like a very deep sleep hygiene podcast where we just go through the whole entire thing we always rush it because there's so many small little parts when it comes to sleep
1: because we want to make sure that audience doesn't fall asleep Because there's so much detail, but I'm
0: sure there are a few people who would listen. No, to that. no,
1: it's yeah. not. That's I was joking. It's a, it's an exciting concept. It's an exciting topic. We'll definitely have a all conversation right. about that. All right.
0: There is one concept that I actually want to touch on, which is I hinted at it at the very beginning, but maladaptive plasticity or negative oh, plasticity. Fine. Neuroplasticity is all good and beneficial. It restores function, but it can also be harmful when there is a connection that is made in the brain that produces aberrant or negative symptoms. It's called maladaptive plasticity, and this can be seen in some people who have used dependent dystonias or writer's cramp people who are musicians that use their hand or usually it's musicians isn't it like Uh when you actually position your hand in a particular way and you use that position over and over and over again you get dystonia that is a maladaptive plasticity and then phantom limb pain phantom limb syndrome somebody's limb has been severed or amputated but because of having the sensation of pain for a long period of time or maybe having pain before the limb was amputated, kept that memory. So even though the limb is not there, they actually feel pain in that non-existent phantom limb
1: but it's not a memory it's actually those pathways are still st- being stimulated in that part of the brain so it feels like it is that the arm is there then the pain is there yes which is i'm, I'm sure it's a very unusual uh, sensation
0: we should see if we can get dr ramachandran on the podcast his his book phantoms in the brain actually talks about the concept of phantom limb pain and this maladaptive neuroplasticity which is so fascinating great so music therapy music therapy has been shown to influence neuroplasticity positively and it has been shown to improve cognition and executive function.
1: Again, I know that this is becoming a running joke. <laughs> Whoever wrote this hasn't seen me play guitar <laughs> uh, because it's not neuroplasticity. It's neurodegeneration. But, but all jokes You're aside, that music is, is remarkable yes, because it, it, sure it, is. It, it involves all parts of the brain. Agreed. Yeah.
0: Agreed. It's beautiful. Well, neuroplasticity, this whole concept is a testament to the brain's incredible adaptability and resilience, isn't it?
1: It is. And I want people who are listening to not to just be stuck with a story of a stroke or a story of a head trauma and bring this concept of neuroplasticity into the present. Your brain is plastic. Mm -hmm. Your brain is malleable. The very things we talked about under traumatic situation, tremendous power to build the brain, rebuild the brain. Imagine if these same things, this neuroplastic brain, all these techniques that we speak about are implemented when the brain is not going through trauma. So don't just think about neuroplasticity in a disease state which right. we know about. So true. Neuroplasticity is your ever-present superpower that helps you grow and revitalize your brain.
0: Well, this was a fantastic conversation. A I personally fun. really enjoyed it. Uh, you and I talk about neuroplasticity in many ways, but bringing all of it together and sharing it with the audience was a lot of fun. Thank you so much for joining us today, and we look forward to connecting with you all again next week. Thank you for joining us today, and we hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to stay up to date with future episodes, please subscribe and follow our podcast on Apple or Spotify and watch the recordings on our YouTube channel. We would appreciate you supporting this show with your review as it helps it reach more people. We look forward to connecting again in the next episode.